Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and before we kick off today I just wanted to give a big shout out to Danielle WC94. Now I'm sure that's probably not the name she was given uh, at birth by her parents but it's the name that's attributed to her on the Apple podcast review that she's left and she says, hey aspiring leader here, this has helped me. Five stars. Habits of Leadership is a podcast I look forward to every release. I'm an aspiring leader and I've gained valuable insights, intrapersonal and interpersonal skills from listening to this podcast. From the talk show hosts and experts to the discussions between Dan and Tim on the Bite Size episodes, I truly feel I'm becoming more equipped and inspired to gain a role in leadership in the near future. Thank you so much, Danielle, for leaving that uh, review there and giving us five stars, of course, on on the uh, Apple Podcasts. If, like Danielle, you find our episodes worthwhile, if you find the conversations interesting, then please, wherever you get your podcasts, it's a simple thing for you to do, but it makes such a big difference to the way our podcast is then shared through the various networks. If you could just leave a rating and if you do have the time, just a few lines by way of review. Now, my guest today is someone whose path I've nearly crossed several times. We find ourselves speaking on the same programs at events around the country and over the past couple of years, of course, online, but we've never actually met in person. I recently got hold of his book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, and was immediately um, compelled to reach out to him and invite him on to the podcast to dig into some of the ideas around his thinking, his research, and his teaching. My guest is Dr. Jared Cooney-Horvath. He's an expert in the field of educational neuroscience, and he's conducted research and lectured at Harvard University, Harvard Medical School, the University of Melbourne, and over 100 schools across four continents. I'm really keen to explore the links between learning in the classroom, the boardroom, or a sporting change room. And I'm delighted to say that Jared joins me now to dig into some of these issues. Jared, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me on. This should be fun. It should be. Um, We have one of those interesting relationships in which I see your name very regularly, either um, on programs that I'm speaking on or in my LinkedIn feeds or whatever. But pure serendipity and of course because of covid over the past couple of years we've never met even so even though you know oh yeah you present at this conference with jared it's like yes but i've never met him and i just thought it'd be interesting to sort of um you know explore that for a moment you know in terms of you know from a a, a neuroscience from a learning perspective what what does it mean to teach people you never meet or or work with people you might never meet and I know that's a bit Mm. of a, a left field one but no, I love it. That's a, an awesome question, and I and I guess you you're, you probably guessed it. It, it. it has to do with context. There's it, the teaching is is a nightmare in the sense that when we say we never meet anyone, we literally won't even see them. Like on Zoom, it's you looking at yourself on a screen talking. So in which case, you, you got to be thinking a lot more in terms of presentation television mode. If this is a documentary that people are just watching. How do I teach in that method? But there are some instances where you're working one-on-one or you've got a smaller group where you can actually see them. 
then it's a lot more akin to being in the classroom and doing some. Now we can mm. use the techniques that allow us to kind of adapt on the fly. Mm. So you've kind of, be, with, with what we've been doing, a lot of the pre, the um, presentations at conferences, mm. that is just pure think in terms of a documentary. If mm. this was a television show, 30 minutes where I don't get to change a thing, mm. what is the best way to get through this content? Because mm. there's just no wiggle room, unfortunately. Yeah. And when you were talking there about, you know, the classroom, what I'd really love to focus on today is, I guess, the synergies and the and the correlations, I guess, between learning in general. So whether you're in a, in a school, whether you're in a, a sporting team, whether you're in a boardroom, you know, it, yeah. the, the role of a leader, a teacher, a coach, in my opinion, this is a loose opinion, I guess, but it's to help develop others and you know teach them in a sense whether it might might sound and look different so i'm, I'm curious to really dig into that that area yeah. and, and and you're you're spot on look at, at at any level if you're at a leadership role half of our job is to get ideas and information across to other people and then supply the environment with which they can now play with and explore those mm. ideas. So in, you're absolutely to be a teacher, to be a leader, to be a, a coach, we're all doing basically the same concepts. And luckily now they're going to change, like maybe the specific techniques we use might change. Like if I'm teaching kids soccer versus math, there might be some different things I do. But the good news is at the end of the day, all human beings learn exactly the same. Mm. And that's a really weird comment for some people to hear. Um, but if you think about it, it's, it's pretty, take it back to biology. Every human being breathes exactly the same. Every human being digests exactly the same. And because learning is biological, every human being learns exactly the same. Now, we might eat different foods. We might, some people might smoke cigarettes versus not. So we might want different inputs. But at the end of the day, the pattern of learning does not change. It hasn't changed for 150,000 years. It won't for the next 150. So, so long as we can kind of lock down what is that learning process, what does learning look like at the base? then it makes sense whether you're on in the boardroom, whether you're on the playing field, whether you're in the classroom, it'll all make sense across the board. Mm. So why then, if it's been the same for 150,000 years, why then do we not have it down pat yet? What are, what are some of the missteps that people are taking? Because, you know, it's, it strikes me, if, if what you're saying is, is, is correct, it strikes yeah. me that we've had the chance <laughs> to, to get it right, and yet evidence shows us in whatever metric you want to use, whether it's, you know, scores, whether it's uh, literal, you know, performance in any, in any domain, it strikes me yeah. that there are mistakes or missteps being made, and I'm curious as to why you think that is the case. And that's, that's the disconnect between the brain and the mind. Believe it or not, the you, the thinking you that you would call yourself, we no longer look for in the brain. Well, 99% of us don't. I'm sure there's still that one weird percent that is looking for it. But we now think of you as a thinking entity as separate from you as a biological entity. And for that reason, you can get this real hard disconnect between what your biology wants or needs and what you think is then best for it. And so that's what you're absolutely right. The, the research shows we are really bad at knowing what's good for our learning. Mm. Until you teach, until you directly understand, oh, here's why things work. Here's what the biology needs, how it's functioning. Then you start to make better choices. But at the end of the day, we, we chase what feels right. And a lot of the times what feels good isn't the best for us. Go back to digestion. We've known how digestion works for quite some time. But separate the biology from you, what feels good to you, 
is cakes and sugars and sweets and woohoo, we're having a good old time. And we know that <laughs> the biology doesn't like it, but we do. So that's what you tend to see with learning is there's just there's just a disconnect between the brain and the mind. And the more we can kind of learn about the mechanisms, then we can bring our mind more in line with our biology and say, cool, now I can play this game a little bit better. As you know, a few episodes back on episode 63, I had Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett on. And the yeah, title yeah. of the the title of the podcast was, you know, everything everything I knew about the brain was wrong. And it was based on a, one of her books, uh, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And I mean, obviously, it was a bit of a clickbaity title, but I tell you, there was definitely some things <laughs> I thought I knew about the brain that, were, according to Lisa and her research and, and the, the body of research there, was wrong. And and she she put the argument forward that you know what what neuroscience knows hasn't had the same platform or um, PR, I think was the phrase she used, that perhaps psychology or pop psychology or the, you know, let's be clear, you know, the Insta influence kind of, you know, stuff that gets put out there. I'm curious to hear, what do you think in your experience has been the number one, two or three things that keep coming up as concepts or ideas that people have just got wrong? Oh, it's step one, and you're, you're going to hate this. A lot of your listeners will hate this, <laughs> is that somehow technology makes learning better, faster, easier. It absolutely and utterly does not. The way the brain works and the way computers work, although they might be parallel in a lot of ways, they are very different. And the problem is, is when we try and learn from a computer, we try and think like a computer, which goes almost exactly against a lot of the, the principles the brain needs to learn anything meaningfully. So that's so I think the, the big mistake is to equate the brain with a computer. We do it a lot. We use it as a metaphor. The brain is a computer. The brain chugs away like this. It's a metaphor. It's not true, but I think we've taken it so seriously that now we think because the brain is a computer, the more we use computers, the better that's going to be for the brain. And it's just not mm. the case. And I think you can, if you want to just kind of simplify, the easiest kind of mechanism of that is the multitasking myth, right? This idea that we can do several things at once or at least kind of jump our focus quickly between things without losing any information. And I don't know, I don't know how many more decades of research we need to demonstrate that that the one thing human beings cannot do that we will never be able to do is multitask. It is the single worst thing for learning, for memory, for retention across the board now i don't know i don't want to bore your audience but do you do you think it's worth explaining why that is or what do you think i think it's cutting the multitasking yeah, yeah i don't think it'll be boring i think everyone listening if they're a leader will have been trying to or a teacher or a coach will have had that situation where they're trying to present either it's an information or a case for change or just some snippet which could be the game changer and they'll be faced with people doing other things while they're trying to get that message across. So, and, and they'll say to them, hey, could you just put your laptop down? Hey, could you just focus here? And they'll get, no, no, it's all right. I'm listening. I'm, I'm, I can do two things at once. Jared, give us the rebuttal. You, you have the floor. <laughs> absolutely cannot do two things at once. So to think about it like this. So the brain is a serial processor. It can do parallel. It can do multiple things on the subconscious level. Fine. But if it, when it comes to learning, you need one stream of input. Now, 
to engage with any task, you have to set up in your brain what's called the rule set to that task. So think about it like a filter. That determines what's relevant, makes it into your awareness, into your memory. What's irrelevant gets blocked out. And the problem is we only have one rule set filter in our brain. So that means if you're ever doing two things at once, you can't do them simultaneously. You just jump quickly back and forth. And every time you jump, you have to take out that old rule set, put in the new one. Take out that filter, put in the new one. Every time you switch your filter, you lose about 0.2 of a second. During that switch, your brain goes black. You process nothing. So when you're jumping back and forth, you're already just losing time and information. But more importantly, every time you jump tasks, you switch out that filter, your brain registers that as a threat or an uncertainty or an unknown. Your brain assumes whatever you were just doing must be irrelevant because you're now focusing over here and it dumps about a half second of incoming information. Whatever the last half second you were just doing, it's gone, it's gone for good. You don't make a baby memory, the brain just gets rid of it. So every time you're jumping, not only are you going slower, but your comprehension starts to tank because you just start losing bits of information from your memory. You have to keep restarting again. Wait, what were we just talking about? What was this going on over here? And we'd see this across the board. Give me a group of kids who say study material for, for one hour, focused. Give me another group of kids who study the same material for five hours while multitasking. You see a 60% drop in memory and retention. All because five hours more, 60% less learning because you're doing the one thing the brain can't do is jump back and forth. And the more you do it, the less information you're holding on to. So a good rule of thumb, and I, it, it sounds weird and scary, but I've it's a hard rule. If you go take a course with me at uni right now, no kids are allowed to take notes during any of my class. There are no pens. There are no papers. There are no, there are heck no computers and cell phones. When you're with me, you're with me. For one hour, your job is to talk to me, to engage with me. When you engage with learning directly one thing at a time, Watch when your memory and comprehension soars without you doing any extra work. And that's the big joke. One of the, the funniest things about learning, human beings are so focused on how they are going to learn stuff later that they forget the best way to learn it is just to engage with it now. When you're taking notes, you're essentially telegraphing to yourself in the moment, this is all stuff that I need to learn or comprehend later. Mm. Watch how much easier it is to just sit in the moment and do it then. No one has ever taken notes during a movie Yet we all remember tons from movies. Why? Because we've allowed ourselves to engage for 90 minutes with this thing. Now, this doesn't mean we never take notes. So the, the last 10 minutes of every class, we'll take a group notes. I'll say, cool, now as collectively, what do we think was important from today? What do we want to take home? So you still take notes. It's just the notes become part of the learning rather than something you do while you're trying to learn. That way you don't multitask. You keep yourself focused on one thing at a time and it all builds into one coherent thing. I'm thinking about my, my daughter in school yeah. who, you know, depending on where she sits, might have to keep looking up from, from the notes that she's having to take. And then, yeah. you know, perhaps trying to do other things that are going on and manage herself on that table. You know, she's only in primary school, but there's all manner of other tasks that she's focusing on whilst the teacher is trying to talk through, I don't know, the, the phonics or, or, or maths or, or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah, and I'm just interested in that idea that, you know, so often we see people taking tons and tons of notes. One of the things I've started doing with my 
presentations is just saying don't take notes you're going to get all these slides afterwards i'd rather you sit there and just shout out questions or or, or yeah. you know and uh, yeah I'm, I'm really fascinated to know that there is actually some reasoning behind that as well it just turns out i didn't know what it was and people miss it too they they feel better when they're writing or they're looking and they think they can handle stuff like i'm just going to check my my email real fast and it's yeah. going to be fine and we're just so bad at recognizing how poorly that we're doing but but i wonder also if the facilitator feels better if they see all of a sudden a heap of heads go down and loads of notes being taken oh that must have hit the mark (laughs) i wonder i wonder if there's this sort of like self-sabotaging need to see people engaged without understanding what engagement is yeah so if you kind of extend it to and by the way i think this is worth pointing out too is to show you how bad we are whenever we do research with multitasking look everyone does poorly but there are still going to be some people out there who go, yeah, and you all can't multitask, but I can. Like, you haven't seen me in action. I'm good at this. It's the people who think they're good always perform worse than everyone else, like without fail. It's the people who know they're bad can kind of temper it. We're all bad, but we can kind of, eh. It's the people who think they're doing good always do worse, and yeah. they just never recognize it. And they don't know how much better, easier life is. When, and how much faster life goes when you don't multitask, when you just lock down one thing and all of a sudden you go, oh, I learned that in 20 minutes instead of two hours. Yeah, you're just playing the rules the way the biology wants them to be played. But then kind of extend that out because I, I think some listeners will be like, okay, and this can kind of lead into a second principle is, so I drove to the cafe this morning while singing along to the radio. So I'm multitasking. Congratulations. Well, yes. All right. Truth be told, we do multitask all the time. So you can do two things at the same time, so long as one of those things is on what's called a bottom-up autopilot. So you can only consciously focus on one thing, but when you're focused on one thing, your biology can be doing something else, so long as it doesn't require you. So like when I'm driving singing, of course, I'm only focused on the singing. I have no clue about the driving. My body's handling that. And I know because as soon as I need to find a parking spot, what's the first thing I do? turn off the radio, focus on the driving again. So you can only focus on one thing at a time, but so long as your biology has something else locked down, boom, it can go ahead and do that without you having to focus on it. Also the same reason you could drive for 20 minutes and suddenly realize, how the heck did I get here? You can't remember anything about that last 20 minutes because because perhaps you're listening to a podcast with Jared and Dan just talking about this stuff. (laughs) Hey, check the the road, check the road people. (laughs) Oh, it's so scary. Sometimes I did that thing where I pulled into the, into my driveway the other day. I'm like, Mm. I, what? I didn't even know where the last 30 minutes, it was just so stuck in my head. Mm. So thank God we have this ability to kind of bottom up, Mm. automate some things. Otherwise I would have either wrecked or I would have had to stop the car and just sit there and think. So this is one of the cool things about biology is it can do that. But I think that that leads to kind of a secondary issue and it's an issue called transfer. So transfer is kind of what we want as human beings, right? So what it means is transfer says, how do I take my knowledge, my abilities, my skills from one context and apply them to a different context? I'm really good at doing these things in this job here. Let me go do those in this job over here. And the problem is because our biology tries to automate, transfer is never an automatic process. And that is a big thing that once you start to recognize it, you'll start to see it everywhere. We expect because human beings can do this here, they can do it everywhere. Because I can do math using numbers here on this piece of paper, I can do math wherever. No, we cannot. 
the better we get at any skill in one context, what happens is the brain will try and automate that skill. It will make it subconscious. So you don't even know what you're doing. Now, when you move context and you have to access that skill, you almost certainly can't because you don't even remember how to do it. So it becomes this real conscious process of, okay, wait a second. What do I know that aligns here? What do I have to tap into? It's never an automatic process. Mm. And just to see this in action, um, think about someone like, um, who is the guy who invented the Apple iStore? What was his name? Um, uh, Ron Johnson. So he's the guy who, who invented the Apple iStore. Everyone's like, dang, you are Mr. Creativity. Congratulations. Awesome. So what happens? He gets poached by JCPenney the struggling retail. They say, come use your creativity over here, save our company. And what was it? 17 months and I think $6 billion in losses later, JCPenney finally fires him. There wasn't an ounce of creativity to be found. So here we have a human being who just showed a skill on the world's grandest stage, changes context, and the skill disappeared. Why? Transfer issue. He had locked down his skills so firmly in a tech sector that when he moved out, he just assumed, I'm going to do the same stuff over here. And you can't. You need to start from scratch and say, okay, what, what needs to change? What needs to adapt? So I think this idea of you can multitask so long as one skill is on autopilot, that idea of autopilot also then becomes a hindrance when it comes to mm. moving our skills between contexts. If you get a new job, if you move into a new realm, it becomes incredibly difficult to do that. Let me test the theory with you then. So I have a theory that sometimes the best athletes or the best practitioners don't necessarily make the best leaders because they don't know what made them good and they can't understand when they look at other people who aren't as good as them and they can't, they find it hard to communicate, oh, well, you need to do X, Y, Z. Yep. We call this the expert blind spot. The better you get at anything, the worse you're going to be at teaching it because exactly that you've automated so much, you can no longer walk a novice through it. And, and you see it, the scary part is you see it in schools. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of movements now where they're trying to say, bring in professionals to teach students. Let's fast track. They don't need to learn how to teach. Just bring in a professional, let them teach. And they forget that teaching is itself a craft. Teachers aren't great because they're the experts in the field they're teaching. They're great because they're the experts at teaching. The best coaches might not be the experts at playing, but they're experts at coaching. Coaching is itself a skill that you can develop. So what you want is you want your teachers, your leaders to be really skilled at teaching, at leading, at coaching more. So now it doesn't mean you can't do both. Like you can be great at both, but being great at one doesn't automatically make you great at the other. And a lot of the times the two will clash. And that's why I always say, look, I'm when it comes to, to neuro, I trained as a teacher. I can teach neuroscience. I can teach things till the cows come home. But when it comes to anything like, like I'm really into pool and darts, if I had to teach my wife how to play pool, she can only be about five minutes with me till she's like, you're just annoying. Cause I can't, I can't work with a novice. I can't get back to how do you hold a stick? I don't, mm. you just hold it, focus. Mm. And it's, it's horrible. It doesn't work. So yeah, that's a, the expert blind spot. Always pay attention to that. And and when we think about it, so think about the the compounding effect of this. Then, so the expert is often charged with you know teaching or, or coaching or leading. And one of the ways, the most common ways they'll often do that is through a presentation of some sort. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the fact that most PowerPoint, well, most present. I'm just let's not say even PowerPoint because we don't need to slander one brand of presentation tool. Talk to me about the the, the major issues with 
presentations when people give them in front of a room using a screen. So this is a very another very interesting thing about the brain. So our brain will our biology has certain what you'll call bottlenecks. Just because of the way it processes the world, some things won't work. So if you've ever had two people trying to speak to you at once, like if you have kids, more than one kid, you've noticed this. When two kids are yelling at you simultaneously, you cannot pay attention to both at the same time. You can listen to one or the other, but you can't get both. Because what happens is when we try and pay attention to speech, all of that information has to get funneled into one small spot in our brain. We'll just call it the language network. But the problem is you've only got one of those. So if you got two voices coming at you, you get this bottleneck where you got to funnel both of those into one spot and there's not enough brain to handle it. It's one or the other. Now, most people think, okay, well, why does that care for presentations? Like, why does that matter for me when I'm teaching? It turns out when we read, all you got to do next time you read something, pull your attention back, you'll notice you hear your own internal reading voice. And it turns out your brain processes your reading voice in exactly the same way as it does an out loud speaking voice. When you hear yourself speaking in your head, so far as your brain knows what's really happening is you're saying those words listening to them as they come back into your ear. So just like you can't listen to two people speak at the same time, neither can you read while listening to somebody speak at the same time. Because the way our brain processes our reading voice, it's the exact same bottleneck. So now bring this back to presentations. What do the vast majority of us do with our PowerPoints and our Prezi slides? We put words on there. We put bullet points on there. And what we've just done is we've asked people to do the impossible. I'm going to talk while you have to read, now as an audience member, uh, you have to choose. I know I can't do both. So what am I going to do? Am I going to read or am I going to listen? And the problem is, is go back to what we were talking to earlier. Most people, so if, you, if you're giving a presentation, say, and you've got a PowerPoint with, with words behind you, 90 to 95% of your audience is going to choose to read. They're going to assume if it's important, it's on that screen. And that's cool. The problem is, is most people read much faster than you speak. So they're going to be done reading while you're still talking. So once they finish reading your slide, now they're going to do a little bit of listening back to the slide, a little bit of listening back to the reading. And once I start jumping back and forth, now I start multitasking and now everything tanks. So we do this kind of research a lot. Give me a group of people that I teach orally. All I do is talk. They'll learn, say, X amount. Another group of people learn the same material just by reading. They'll learn about the same amount. Another group of people has to read while I talk over it, 30 to 70% drop in memory and retention, all because we've now forced them to do the impossible and it kills their learning. So we've got to think, where, what are we doing with our words? Do I want you reading? Do I want you listening? Because you can't do both. And to be clear, that's because this was one of the things which jumped out in, in your book. You know, I think it's the very, very first chapter. You know, this, is, this the same, is this the case even if you're reading, as a lot of people do, literally reading off the slide, you know, bullet point one. Because <laughs> I can understand people going, yeah, well, that's kind of obvious because, you know, there'll be bullet points up there, but then someone's saying something different. But you, I, I believe I'm right in saying the case is the same, even if you're reading what is on the slide. Yeah. Is that the... Aside from it being completely boring, yes, it is. It, it is a, yeah. in, in itself, that's a crime. That is, like, that is not, a crime. If you're yeah. reading your PowerPoint slides to yeah. other humans, and, and don't, by the way, I was, so I went to, um, and this is going to sound like I'm blowing sunshine, but I'm not. So I, I went for a couple of years to Harvard thinking, oh, this is going to be the best institution ever. I literally had three classes where professors read from their textbooks mm. to us. It was the worst 
teaching I have ever seen. So it still mm-hmm. happens where people are like, I'm just going to read to you. Yeah. Don't. Don't do that. Nobody's got time for that. I can read myself. But it turns out if you're reading the same words as you're hearing, you still get the bottleneck because of timing. So go just and you can see it tonight. Go pop on Netflix and pop on the subtitles. So you're going to be hearing and seeing the same words. But notice the timing goes out of sync. You read much faster than people talk. So after about a second, you're already going, "Uh oh, it's going to be one or the other. And you'll notice with the subtitles on, most people will start to ignore the bottom of the screen or they'll start to ignore the sound and focus only on the reading. And it just becomes really disjointed. So even when it's the exact same words, we get the same bottleneck due to timing. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about graphs and use of imagery. And I know they're not the same, but yeah, just generally, you know, so I'm, I'm getting rid of, I'm getting rid of the words, yeah. and I, but I'm going to use imagery or I'm going to use graphs to illustrate a point. So it turns out you, you can absolutely look at images while listening to somebody speak. So if you replace words with say simple images of, of a cat, people are going to be fine. They're not going to be bottlenecking. The problem is, is most people then go, well, cool. Yeah. I'm going to put on tables and charts and graphs and all this great stuff. Those do not work the same way as images. So images work because they have what's called a gist, right? If I show you a picture of a mountain range, you don't need to look at every pebble to go, oh, okay, it builds a mountain. No, you look at one thing, extrapolate, boom, it's a mountain range, off we go. Graphs, tables, charts don't have a gist. By their very nature, in order to make sense of them, you need to know every detail. You need to know every word, every axis, every number to make any sense of what the heck is being said by that graph. So if you ever pop a graph up on a thing, you've now forced them. They've got to either try to decipher what this table means or listen to you. They can't do both, but most of them are going to try and jump back and forth. And so we force them to multitask. So if you're ever in the unenviable position, like you're teaching science or you've got, you got to use numbers, you got to use charts, you've got to walk people through. Think about it like, like you're looking through a family photo album, right? You don't sit down with somebody and throw all the pictures on the table and say, figure it out. You go through one at a time. It's got to be the same thing with tables and charts. If I got a table, first, I might just layer in the X, the axes. And I say, okay, what we're going to be looking at here is time by money. And then I'll layer in one thing at a time. Here was quarter one. Here was quarter two. I'm not showing them the whole graph. I build the graph piecemeal. Or I lead that if for some reason you can't do that, all you have is one static graph that you can't chunk out, then you need to start signaling. This is essentially what PowerPoint was built to do. You use circles, you use highlight tools, you find ways to walk people through the table or the chart so they don't have to interpret it. You're doing it for them as you're going through it. So that's it's if you replace words with a table, you're in no better shape. You still got to figure out a way to walk people through that. Just before when we were talking about, you know, nobody, nobody actually reads in silence because they'll hear the, um, the, you know, your own internal voice. Yeah. One of the coolest things in your, in your book is, it, I won't say who it is because for those people who are going to go and buy the book as a result of hearing you speak now, but there's an image of somebody with a very well-known voice comes up. And it says, this is who I am. And you just said that in my voice. And I, I you know, you, I've actually had people who have read my book go, you know, oh, oh my goodness, it's I can hear you. 
I can hear your voice when you're speaking. And and up until reading your book, I was like, oh, yeah, how good. You know, like, I've obviously just done such a good job of getting myself out there and whatever. And and, and it turns out, no, it's just it's just the way we're wired. It's got nothing to do. It's actually got nothing to do with me. I, hey, you're important enough. It turns out you're – so the brain, we are ridiculously good at mimicking. other. So believe it or not, if you – like, if you have someone reading your book who knows you well enough and they say they can hear your voice – if I could image their brain while they were reading it, their brain would be sending out signals that look like your voice, not like theirs. Their brain, it's for as far as they know, you are whispering into their ears, which is- <laughs> what, a, what an awful prospect. <laughs> I know, I gonna, a dream for some people, a fear for others. But this is, it's, it's that same thing as we mimic other sounds, other voices so dang well. Like, it, and this is, different people will mimic at different rates and paces. So everyone can mimic voices incredibly well. But there are some people, and I, I know this because I happen to be one of them, we mimic sounds ridiculously. And so what you tend to see is these are the people who can do, um, they can do impressions like that guy from the police academy who can make sound effects mm, with his. Yeah. When I was growing up, that's I used to do that constantly and I never paid attention. It wasn't a conscious thing. Like if I heard a beep, I would make the same sound out loud and my parents would just be like, the hell are you doing? Shut up. Mm. But it just turns out it's, if you image my brain, Every time I hear a sound, my brain will start to replay that sound essentially verbatim. And so it's not me conscious. It's just still going on. So I'll just try and do it. And this is so this is one of the interesting things about the brain is you're not kind of alone in there. All of this is in there with you. And it's all kind of vying to become a part of you. You can still be standalone. And we could talk about that at another time. Who are you? Because you are more than a brain. But your brain doesn't always recognize you as being an entity and it will just try and feed as much stuff as it can into you. And so you kind of get stuck in these loops sometime. I know that you've um, challenged, I guess, some of the more common thinkings that, that's out there, particularly in the education space. And I thought maybe we could just focus on that. And the reason I want to focus particularly in education is that most people that we work with went to school. And so there's a lot of um, learned behaviors which then I've found flow over into, um, you know, a first grade rugby league team, for example, or a, or a corporate boardroom, yeah. which, you know, part of my role I see is tr- trying to help them unlearn some of the stuff. But I wonder, you know, a lot of our audience um, I know are, are in education. I thought it'd be quite interesting, and, and a lot of our audience would be parents. <laughs> so I just think it'd be quite interesting to spend, the, if you don't mind, the, path, the, the last sort of section of, of this, just zeroing in on, motivation you know yeah. engagement and and perhaps you know mindset yeah. i personally think that one of the biggest challenges we have around mindset and motivation is that we've always framed it as a you problem you need to sort your mindset out you need to sort your motivation out and the way i come at it is so uh, no no we we need to sort this out like it because because i i you, a kid could come to me with a, a growth mindset in inverted commas and just by the virtue of the way i stand <laughs> you know the way I welcome them or don't welcome them into the room the way the, the, the we assess the way we give feedback we could change that mindset in an instance yeah. and so I'm wondering in your experience you know the role of the environment and in in not so not interventions interventions yeah okay they can have their place but yeah. they're going to be pretty weak I would suggest if we just think well that's the solution you know I had Richard Ryan on 
um, a couple of years back, one of the co-founders of self-determination theory. And, and that was a big line that we spoke about. You know, we've always, our oh, kids have got to be more engaged. Kids have got to turn up with a growth mindset. And, and I hear the same in the corporate world, you know, just turn up and do your job, you know, just turn up and play. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, I, I reckon there's more to it than that. Yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> I've gotten in a bit of a, of, of a couple of fights with the yes. proponents of these for these <laughs> very reasons. But so what, you, what you're pushing now into is, is what we'd call contextual well-being. And I think we, we look at mindset, we look at motivation as exactly as you've said, on a very individual level. And we're trying to apply an individual model to a collective group. And everything we know about translation says that will never work. So think about it, like in schools or in, in businesses right now, everyone will say, hey, we're, we're going to do well-being. We're going to use like the PERMA model, which is the model of well-being. That is an individual model of well-being. That is meant for one person, maybe working with a therapist to lock down his or her life. That has nothing to do with context. Contextual well-being says, cool, you can ditch all worry about individual well-being it's what do we highlight? What does this world, what does this context say is important? And human beings will adapt to social norms more than they will to our kind of individual personalized mottos. So go back to school. We try all we can to say, hey, kids, <laughs> learning is what we're here to do. This is a learning institution. We want you to make mistakes. We want you to embrace error. We want you to fail and grow and learn and explore from it. Cool. That's what we're saying. But what is the context actually dictating? In this instance, schools are dictating that, yeah, at the end of all of this, there's going to be one test. And what you do on that one test is going to dictate everything you can do beyond that moment for the rest of your life. So our words say we want you to screw up. But the context says, yeah, but if you screw up, you're going to have very little life decisions. So in this instance, human beings adapt to the context. You don't even need the words become meaningless. The context says this is a performance institution. Everyone is going to go that way. And in that instance, whatever your motivation, whatever your mindset is, it's all going to gear towards that. So you're spot on when you say a lot of our focus at the collective level is on individual well-being. It doesn't have to be. If you get the context right, if you say this is a learning institution and the context reflects that, congratulations, you don't have to teach well-being or motivation. People will adapt to that. So where is your contextual, what, what is the world or the wherever you're working in saying is important? What are you highlighting? What are the things that are in the trophy cabinet that you're saying is important? When you walk into reception, what does the book have there? What are we actually giving kids grades for? That's going to drive their behavior and motivation far more than anything else we're doing. Hey, help me out on one, because I've had an argument in front of a, a room of, I'm going to say, oh, maybe 200 plus educators. This is completely random, off topic, but <laughs> just as you were talking there, like, what do we grade? Can you grade effort So in, in school? And my argument was, I reckon it's pretty hard to grade effort unless we're wiring everyone up and and you know we can grade physical effort because we can check your heart rate we can check your gps <laughs> data you know we know we know how hard you're working but cognitively is it how easy is it for me to grade your effort in a lesson it's it's nonsense you've just done what's called reification so the problem with grading is this is anytime you use a tool right you have to assume the world view that that tool has every tool assigns different values to the world. This is important. This is unimportant. Here's how it fits together. It's like when you use a computer, it dictates the world has to be numerical. It has to be ones and zeros. Otherwise, it doesn't exist here. Fine. Grades, grading is simply a tool, right? So when you use it, you have to, what is it saying about the world and how it functions? 
And its underlying motto for grades is reify, quantify, rank. So reify says that's when the process of taking something that's ethereal or an idea or a concept and turning it into a concrete noun. So when uh, an advertising advertisement says, you know, um, <laughs> happy meals will make you happy. What they're doing is they're reifying happiness. Happiness isn't a thing. Man, you can't go dig it up in the garden and give me a sack of happiness. But they turn it into a thing by saying, yes, happiness is buying a happy meal. It is a, a noun. It is an action. It is something you do. Once you reify, then you can quantify. Now we can assign a value to it. This is a 6 out of 10 on happiness. This is a 2 out of 10 on happiness. Why would you quantify? Because then we can rank. This is objectively happier than this thing. This is objectively funnier than this thing. This kid is objectively smarter than this kid. Grades demand that you reify, quantify, rank. So technically, you can grade anything you want to. But when you rewind the clock back to that very first step, reify, that's when you realize, no, at that moment, you were setting a definition. You were defining what effort is, and you could have picked any other definition you wanted to. At no point did the definition of intelligence have to be what you perform on this test. Effort have to be what you said in the classroom. So when people say, yeah, we're going to start grading and take it beyond effort, man, there's now standardized tests for creativity. They're going to start judging kids on sense of belonging grades. They're going to reify, quantify, rank kids sense of belonging as though that were an actual thing. And no, you can't. So far as I'm concerned, you can't grade anything. Grades are the silliest thing. We They were invented in 1792. Before that moment, if you would have talked about grading an essay, like if you would have told Thomas Jefferson, this kid got an A on a physics essay and this kid got a C minus, he'd look at you like you're crazy. You can't assign value to somebody's thinking. We can talk about merits and non-merits, but we can't grade it. So if you can grade effort, you can grade anything, but should we be grading any of that stuff? And I, I always stand on the side of, no, it's just silliness. You're just, all you're doing is reifying concepts that don't need to be reified. There's a couple of, so a couple of other things jump out at me when, when I'm hearing this again. And these are things which I think started in, in school. And I see these with the, some of the biggest corporate clients we work with. I'm going to throw two things at you. Learning styles and uh, personality tests. You know, so again, playing on that idea of, uh, re- I guess that, that would be some form of reifying, mm-hmm. you know, like, but you know, and, and literally categorizing, forming teams based on, you know, whether it's the disc profile or Clifton strengths or whatever it might be. Talk to me a little bit, a bit from a, a neuroscience point of view about the danger of categorizing people by something either like learning styles, yeah. so I can only learn, you know, in that particular fashion, and, and the idea of personality tests. The, the power of our biology, and this is our brain and our DNA, our genetics. People think genetics is fixed. No, it, it ain't at all that the power of biology isn't that it came into this world to do one thing it's that it's highly adaptive it came into this world to change and adapt to the demands being placed upon it that's why we are so powerful so when we throw someone down an alley and say okay you're this kind of learning or this kind of learner cool and what you'll see is i can actually give me someone who says i'm a visual learner I can image their brain and I can show you exactly why they are a visual learner. Their brain responds more to one thing than the other. But if you rewind the clock, you realize that was never biological. It wasn't inborn. It was created. At some point in their past, they decided they liked looking at something. That fed back. They looked for more things to look at. They liked it more. They started this cycle and they built 
their brain into that way, which means at any point we can build it out into another direction. So even these things that we say, oh, neuroscience says I've looked at your brain and I can see it. Of course, that's how biology works. It's going to reflect what we're doing. If we do different stuff, biology will start to reflect that. And now the auditory learner becomes the visual, becomes a kinesthetic. So once we kind of shoehorn people into these ways and start to feed into those ways, we're essentially locking them down into that path saying, cool, we're going to push your biology down one path and that's all you're ever going to be allowed to do. So when we say, yeah, these learning styles, A, they don't exist. We have our preferences, but there's no such thing as one way to learn anything. If you align the pedagogy, the way you teach it to the content itself, everyone is going to learn better. If you teach dance physically, everyone is going to learn better. If you teach art visually, everyone is going to learn better. So there's, if you align the teaching to the content, it doesn't matter what style everyone has. They're all going to do better because the alignment there is what pushes the learning. But now take it to personality. I'm, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure I'm going to make a lot of people mad with this. Personality testing and IQ testing, they're the only things that psychology says that they can really hang their hat on as being the best of the best. It is the most nonsensical reification stuff I, in the world. Like, and it's gone to the, and don't, I'm not just saying this as someone who's just kind of stepping in saying, oh, that sounds silly. I'm working on a documentary now on genius. So I spent probably the last two years doing nothing but learn everything about these types of tests and performing them and working with, with uh, statisticians to kind of suss out how are you get. It is the most reified nonsense I have ever seen in my life. It's embarrassing because I'm, I'm a psychologist. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a cognitive psychologist too. And I, if, I say if, if my field, if this is the best we've done in 100 years, man, we are trash because there ain't nothing going on with that. And a lot of people say, yeah, but we get these correlations. That's totally fine. Two things always to, to remember. One, correlation ain't causation. And two, everything is malleable. When it comes to personality, psychology, intelligence, any of those things we think we're measuring hardcore, but we just can't quite find what the biology is of it, then it isn't a biological thing. It is a psychological thing. It is changeable. Anything we do can change. And when you say it's highly predictive, just go look at the numbers. It's no more predictive than tests of very specific biological traits. And even with that pred- prediction, it's not great. The prediction is trash. It's usually a correlation of like 0.2, which is better than some other things. But that only explains what? 0.2 times 0.2 is 4% variance? That's literally throw a dart, man. You're getting You're getting no bang for your buck on that one. You might as well just close your eyes, spin around the room and point to somebody. You're probably going to do a better job. Well, I'm pretty confident that some people listening will have um, either had hallelujah moments because someone is someone has put into words the things they felt. And I also reckon there'll be some people probably yelling or, or, or you know, maybe internally, but whatever, whatever's happened, I, I reckon you've definitely got people thinking um, as a result of this conversation, Jared, I'm really grateful for you giving up, up your time. Um, if people want to get hold of your books, what are your books called? Where do we get them from? And how do we find out more about your work? Oh, very cool. I'm easy. Don't feel obligated by any means. But if you, so my first book was called Stop Talking, Start Influencing. And that looks at 12 kind of principles of learning. 
Um, my second book was called 10 things schools get wrong and how we can get them right. So that's a lot more that philosophy stuff about reification mm. stuff in schools. So if you're really interested in there, go there. Otherwise, if you look up, I think LME global, so learning made easy was the name of the, so LME global, um, dot com. That's where if you want, there's videos, there's yeah. more free reading, there's tons of stuff there. So go there's there. Some really, there's, yeah, there's some really cool YouTube videos uh, where Jared always kicks it off with saying, you know, I've read the research so you don't have to. And I trust that he's not uh, changing the, the, the message in there. So, you know, he's read the research, we don't have to, and he puts it into some really compelling, in the way he's spoken today, you know, really compelling. So, if you're interested, if any of you uh, were kind of with the personality and the IQ stuff starting to get a little iffy, the last three videos I put out, I've, I've been on break because I'm moving, so I haven't done a video in about three months. But the last three I did were specifically on on uh, genetics, intelligence, heritability, IQ. So these are all things that you can look up if you're more interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to make sure that all the links to um, those videos and LME Global and, and the books are, are in the show notes. So if you are interested, please um, yeah, fi find those links in the show notes. Jared, I know you're uh, heading off to California very shortly. So thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm just going to throw this out there now. I would love to get you back on uh, down the track and dig into some more stuff because I love the way you think. But more importantly, I love the way you put that you communicate it and you put it across because oh, heck um, yeah anytime yeah, you guys want if there's topics popping up i'm all yours you just let me know beautiful thanks so much mate <laughs> I'll cheers see as i mentioned there the links to jared's books his website and his videos are in the show notes please take the time to have a look at them because i think they'll really build on the conversation that we've had here today as we always say, if you found that conversation worthwhile, there's a fair chance that someone you know would also find it worthwhile. So please feel free to share this as far and as wide as you can via email or your social media. However you choose to get the word out there, it really does make a big difference for us and we really do appreciate it. Also, why not be like Danielle and leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out on an episode. If you'd like to check out previous episodes or you'd like to find out a little bit more about our work or the Habits of Leadership Academy, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and all the information that you would need is there. But until our next episode, thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Take it easy.